I just want to add in person this time my sincere gratitude for the pleasure of being part of this church family. I'm just one person in it. I have a public role, but it is, it is no more important than yours if you serve the Lord Jesus. I've been praying a lot for you this week. I, I do every week, but this week in particular, I'm conscious that many of you have come in with heavy burdens and it's hard sometimes for you to pay attention. It's hard for you to really worship, to listen to Bible teaching, because you're so distracted by real, legitimate, honest grief. Others of you are, you're in a sweet spot. God is blessing you. You can't believe your life is as good and as sweet as it is right now. We live and love and serve and walk together with Jesus as a family. And today we're starting a series called called, and it is an thoroughly biblical, completely un-American invitation for you to do the radical thing that the New Testament calls every Christian to do, which is to find your place in the body with Jesus as the head. Pastors are not the head of the body, they're just members of it. Jesus is the head of the body, and as I'm going to show you, also the foundation for our lives. And the un-American, thoroughly Christian thing to do is not to consume spiritual goods and services by coming to a gathering once a week and chipping in a little bit with what you have time to give, but rather to find your place in the body and in love of Jesus and in love of others, give yourself fully all that you have so that the Lord's grace, love, goodness, truth could be shown to other people. We call you volunteers, that's just an, doesn't begin to do the biblical concept justice. What Christians, all of us are supposed to be is ministers, servants, saved servants who give ourselves in loving service to God and to others. So please don't think for a moment that we take you for granted, that we assume that your role, your gifts, your giving your encouragement, your love, your listening, your speaking, that it doesn't matter. It matters eternally to God, and it, it matters deeply, deeply to me personally. So thank you. I'd like to pray with you, and before I do, I'd like you to take the time, because we're going to dive right into the Bible, I'd like you to take the time to find your Bible and open it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, please find one in the pew near you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take the Bible you find home with you, not your neighbor's, the one in the pew, okay? And we would be delighted for you to have that at home and begin to read it with us. 1 Corinthians 3 is today's passage. And because I'm going to be looking very specifically at some words and some phrases, it'll be more helpful to you if you have it open in front of you. Everybody got it? Feeling okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can pray and you listen. You're actually there. Words are not spoken into the air. It's not wishful thinking. You actually live and love. You're present. We are in your presence. We've gathered, Lord, as, as your body in this place to hear from you, hear from your word. Give me the grace to explain it clearly, 
faithfully, lovingly. And I pray that it would do what only your word can do. That it would comfort or encourage or correct or convict anyone and everyone according to their need. There are people here, Lord, who have come seeking you, or or maybe they're just here because somebody else invited them. They're not even sure why they're here. I pray especially for those that they would turn to you and look to you for salvation today, that they would trust you to be their Savior. And for the many who have come, knowing of their relationship with you, help us hear your word and be deeply motivated by it so that it would change the way we live day to day. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been part of this church family for a long time. I moved from Mexico to go to Bible college here because I was given two choices as a young Bible college student aspiring to be a missionary. I could go to Bible college in Springfield, Missouri, or Southern California. Well, I had been to San Diego and I'd been to Springfield, Missouri, so the choice was very clear. I'd never actually visited the college I attended until the day I enrolled. It didn't even matter what the campus looked like. It was in San Dimas instead of Springfield, Missouri. Anybody ever been to Springfield, Missouri? You know what I mean then, right? Bake in the summer, freeze in the winter, just brutal. At least here, if you get bummed out, you can go look at the ocean. I don't know what exactly you do when you're discouraged in Springfield, Missouri. Fish, probably. My friends there tell me. Anyway, there I was, and I started attending this church as a college student, started volunteering here, and had, as Bible college students often do, idealistic visions of what the church was, what God's people were, what it meant to be a church family. So imagine my shock, probably as I was probably 20, I was standing out in that parking lot. And the senior pastor at the time was not only a gifted preacher, he also had a distinctive car. And he always parked it in the same place. He was a methodical kind of guy. So apparently people would notice when his car wasn't there, which of course meant he wasn't there. So imagine my surprise as a 20-year-old when a church member who I kind of put up on a pedestal rolled up next to me in his car, rolled the window down and said, hey, looks like pastor's gone. Who's preaching today? And I told him, and he said, thanks, and drove away. Just not to park. I mean, he left. Apparently that was enough for him. And that was like, wow, that was... That was harsh. I mean, he did it right in front of me, too. And all these romantic notions of what church life looked like on a real day-to-day basis with ordinary people like myself started being adjusted to what reality is. And there's a temptation when you read the New Testament and hear of the apostles to think that Christians back then were ideal. They really got it. Christians today, not so much. When I read 1 Corinthians 3, where you opened your Bible, I realized something, that people have always been people. They've always picked their favorites. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is on his way to coaching up and correcting a group of Christians in Corinth, modern-day modern-day Greece, to whom he has brought the gospel. They were legendary for their wickedness. They were pagans among pagans, but Paul has presented Jesus to them, and a good number of the Corinthians have been saved, and a church was born there. But because there's now a gathering of churches, that church had been served by different people, by Paul himself, by another great preacher named Apollos. And they, like Christians always have, have kind of picked their favorite. 
And they're divided. They're arguing amongst themselves who they prefer. And some will say, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos. I don't know if they had t-shirts or hashtags, but they've clearly taken sides. And Paul is on his way to correcting them, and in the middle of that correction, he lays out a vision for all the Christians in Corinth that is rare and very rarely explained. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 3, and you'll see what I mean. So I'll read in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 3, 3, you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? But when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building." According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Don't miss this. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So I'm not really preaching. This is a different kind of effort this morning. I'm really teaching you a Bible doctrine. It's rarely preached. I've rarely heard it. I've only read it explained in a single book. I've only preached it or shared it with you once in the nearly 14 years I've been here as senior pastor. There's a good reason it's not often mentioned. It's because Christian Bible teachers and pastors fear deeply being misunderstood on this point. Do you understand what Paul is saying so far? Can you follow his word picture? He's saying, listen, I put a foundation under your feet. 1 Corinthians 3.10, look at that verse carefully. What is the foundation, Paul says? 1 Corinthians 3.10, we're studying the Bible together. What is it? What's the foundation? It is. Did I miss it? The foundation is Jesus Christ. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Here's the mistake. I, didn't, I gave you the wrong verse. <laughs> no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is the foundation of the Christian life is Jesus. And Paul is using a word picture. He says, you Corinthians, you new Christians are like God's field. I planted, in other words, I brought you the gospel. Apollos came along and watered you, but, verse 7, it's God who gave the growth. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Clear so far? It's a word picture. The gospel has come to the Corinthians. A foundation has been laid that has saved them, which is Jesus Christ. And this is the beginning of something radical, and I'll tell you why in a minute it's so rarely taught. 
But here's the first and the most important thing. If you're new to church, if you're still trying to figure this out, this actually is the most important thing in the sermon for you. Our salvation is by grace. This is our secure foundation. Pastors don't often teach what comes next, I think, because we fear being misunderstood. And the most important thing that anybody could tell you, the most important thing I could tell you this morning, is that Jesus alone can save you. And He will never save you by your own good works. He will only save you by His good works. It's not a matter of you religiously becoming more like Him, adopting a set of practices and beliefs that will eventually make you good enough so that God will someday accept you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that our salvation, in other words, the forgiveness of our sins and our welcome into the family of God is entirely by God's grace. It is undeserved. It is His gift, His work, His sacrifice in our place. Here's a passage of the Bible that makes this perhaps as plain as it can be said anywhere. Read this with me, please. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Stop right there. By grace you have been saved. In other words, it's free. It's undeserved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. If that wasn't clear enough, he says it again. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. In case that wasn't clear, he says it again. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. People who are religious, even if they call themselves Christian, tend to be arrogant because they think they've earned something. They think they have achieved. They think they have attained something. As I told you a few times, because it's such a striking moment in my life and such a great example of what I'm trying to explain to you, when I was a little kid, I watched a teenager drown in a public pool in Mexico. Suddenly, we noticed that someone was lying on the bottom of the pool, not moving. I was a little boy. I, I was frozen. Someone else, about a 17-year-old kid, probably knew what to do. He dove in, picked that kid up, swam up to the top, threw him on the pool deck. I didn't know what CPR was, but now I realize I watched him administer CPR. I watched the kid who was on the bottom of the pool vomit all over the pool deck and come back to life. And he saved him. Now, do you think the kid who drowned and was rescued by a stranger went home and bragged about his day? No. He couldn't stop crying and hugging the young man who saved him there on the pool deck. Tears were running down his face. He kept saying, thank you. Why? Because it was entirely the work of another that rescued him. It wasn't his achievement at all. The need, the loss, the danger, the death was all his. The effort, the rescue, the glory all came to the rescuer. That's the way it is with our salvation. Our salvation is entirely by grace when we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are some key words. Grace means gift and faith means trust. In other words, the salvation that Jesus bought for you when he died on the cross for you, being tempted in every way as you are, what Jesus wants to do and offers to do for sinners is to trade lives with us. 
That's his grace. When do we enter into that relationship? Not when we work hard for it, but when we turn to him in humble trust. And we say to Jesus, I know that I have sinned and I'm a long way from you, but I trust that you can and will save me. That's why Paul said at the end of his life, shortly before they killed him, I know in whom I have believed. He didn't refer to a creed, as important as that is. He didn't refer to a set of beliefs, as important as they are. He referred to the person he knew who had come to rescue him. So, so far, what I'm telling you is that our salvation is by grace. And when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11 that there is no other foundation aside from Christ Jesus, he is referring to the fact that the Corinthians trusted Christ, They turned from literal pagan idolatry, started trusting Jesus, and they were saved, and the foundation is secure. Now, let me check. Is that clear so far? Now, the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10, says something different. Look at this. For we are his workmanship. Those of us who have been saved by his grace at the moment we put our trust in him, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So side by side, two verses tell you of the grace of Christ to save you, and this verse tells you that once you are saved, God already has good, what? Good works. This is the great confusion. Religion tells you do good works to be saved. The invitation of the Bible and the command of the Bible is to do good works once God has saved you. See the difference? The Bible would go on to argue elsewhere, that's another sermon, that if you are not walking in good works, it's most likely evidence that you don't know God at all. Because when you are in Christ, by grace, through faith, you are remade, you are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, and you are remade, reborn, you have a new foundation so that you would do good works, which God already had in mind for you, that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. In other words, what we're talking about here is in salvation, that's God's work for us once we are saved, this is our work for God. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, that's what Paul is trying to explain, or rather is explaining. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. What's the foundation again? Christ. But now that the foundation is in, other people are building on those new lives. And Paul says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Watch this. This is the radical part. This is the part that seldom gets taught because we're afraid we will be misunderstood. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. How many of your Bibles have the word day capitalized? The reason for that is it's not like any other day. 
The translators know to capitalize, it's not in Greek, but they understand the meaning and the weight of what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is saying is, a day is coming in which God is going to do what I'm going to describe to you next. So Americans refer to D-Day. June 6, 1944. There have been, been many days, June 6, but there is only one that has D-Day because that day was unlike any other in human history. This is a day, Paul is explaining, of evaluation, of judgment. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones... Wood, hay, straw, each one's work, notice these are the good works that Paul talked about in Ephesians, not the salvation, but their works, their behavior once they came to Christ. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Listen, Christian. This is true for you and for me. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive what? A reward. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, I just want to be clear, I want to go really slow because if I'm misunderstood, I've actually encouraged you on to condemnation. If you take from any of this message that you need to go out there and try harder so that someday God will forgive you, that's heresy. You'll be lost. I'll be held accountable for not being clear. So just, I'm checking concepts. Because I've only preached this once in nearly 14 years of being here. I've only heard it preached one other place, and there's only one pastor I know who ever writes about it. Because what Paul is trying to tell us here is our salvation, the foundation is laid at the entire expense of God. Our salvation is from the Lord. Our salvation is entirely by grace. But number two, our rewards are by works because we're all building on the foundation of our salvation from the moment we trust Christ. And everyone, Paul says, needs to be careful how they build. Because, verse 13 again, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer what? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Did you ever notice that in your Bible before? It's as scriptural as salvation by grace. But it doesn't tell you how to be saved. It tells you how you should live and the accountability and the evaluation that you will face from the moment you are. Paul captures this idea in two simple phrases. He says, first of all, each one should be careful, let each one be careful how he builds. 
Number one, he will receive a reward or he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Now, to be perfectly clear, here's what I'm trying to tell you as a summary of this little scripture passage I just read to you. What God is going to judge is not your salvation. He's going to judge your works, not your sins. Why? Because your sins have all entirely been paid for by Jesus Christ. The foundation is below your feet. The building is secure. But from the moment you trusted Christ, in my case, more than 40 years ago, when I recognized myself, young as I was, someone who had sinned against God, who had broken his commandments, most evident in my young life as a kid, as my daily disobedience to my parents. I could read in the Ten Commandments that God told me to honor and obey my parents, and I didn't. And my conscience troubled me about it, which is God's gift to me telling me, you're blowing it, you're going against my rules. As a child, I understood my need for forgiveness. I came to Jesus, and entirely by His grace, when I placed my faith in Jesus, He saved me. From that day to this, I've been building. On the secure foundation of Jesus Christ, I've been choosing just like you every day. I've been choosing what to do with my money and how much of it to give to the local church and to work of God's kingdom. I've been choosing how to entertain myself and how to use my time. I choose day by day, many times a day, how to treat people. Will I treat them with love and grace and kindness? Will I have the courage to tell them the truth? If it becomes evident to me that they don't know Jesus, will I have the courage to open my mouth and start the conversation and tell them of the only one who can save them? As a, mar as a married man, as a friend, as a father, God has given a lot of things into my hands, just as he has into yours, and I am choosing how to build on that foundation. Now, if you look at the verse, Paul talks about some construction materials. Look in verse 12. Paul says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that's one group. The other group is wood, hay, and straw. We're studying the Bible together. What do you notice about the difference in those two categories? One burns and the other doesn't. The first group is immensely valuable. The other group is very, very common and not fireproof. Each one's work will become manifest for the day, that's that day of judgment of God's evaluation, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work, notice that, not what sort of salvation, but what sort of work each one has done. Here is your future in the presence of God someday. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. What's the next verse say? If anything you build on the foundation of your salvation survives God's holy evaluation, you will be rewarded. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer what? Loss. And I've wondered what that loss is. And I don't know for sure, but I imagine it's the pain of regret. 
You can imagine this day, if you will, in a very childlike image that comes to my mind as I study this passage. As a young kid, by the grace of God entering our family, the gospel entered our family a generation earlier, and one of the meanest men who ever lived actually became a Christian and raised my father in a Christian home, and the difference was radical. That father who grew up, my father, who grew up in a very, very different condition than his sisters did because the gospel came in the home before my father was born, gave the gospel, presented Jesus to me early, so I was saved. Every day from that day to now, I've been building. And the secure foundation is under my little house, and it's solid. Nothing's happening to the foundation. The foundation will remain. It is fireproof. It's not going anywhere. Jesus will save me. But all my life, I've been building sometimes to obey God. And I've read his commandments on how to love people, how to forgive people, how to serve people, how to give to him. And every time I have, God in his goodness has allowed me to put a little gold, silver, precious stones into the house. But other days I've been selfish, self-interested, disobedient, immoral, wicked. Wood, hay, and straw are going into the house. So after over 40 years, pretty big little house. Then one day, God will put the house on a conveyor belt. This is how I imagine it. This is my word picture. (laughs) Send it through the blast furnace of His holiness who knows the truth about everything I've ever done, including my motives. And the fire will reveal what was true and good and eternal. And what comes out, what remains of that little house... That and that alone is my reward. Everything that was burned, Paul says, I will suffer what? Loss. And perhaps that's why it says at the end of Revelation that there will come a time when God will dry the tears of every believer because I can imagine if this is a day of judgment where everything we've done for Christ is revealed by His holy presence, I can imagine deep regret when we compare what we did with what we could have done. What am I trying to tell you? Simply this, that salvation is by grace, but our rewards are entirely by works. This changes everything. It puts pastors, if I may, in our rightful place. Because we pastors are very public faces to Christian ministry, and sometimes we embarrass ourselves and the Lord. And you can read those stories. But someone may sit in a church and listen to a gifted communicator say, man, that guy's really piling up the rewards, but what they can't see is he's self-interested. He loves the applause. He's doing it for the lifestyle. He started well, but now he's gone off course. Meanwhile, across the parking lot, ordinary people who are nameless and faceless in the congregation are teaching children. Men are providing security and teaching to the children of the church. Others are quietly going about their business, visiting the sick. Like some women in our church, they're going every single week to the Ronald McDonald house to sit with those afflicted families and feed them at the worst possible time in their lives as one of their children has to be hospitalized at Children's Hospital of Orange County. 
In other words, there's no certain way of knowing what the house looks like and what will survive of it. Somebody might be building a five-story mansion, but because it was mainly about him, the whole thing's going to burn. Someone may be writing a check and greatly impressing the church treasurer. And what they don't know is he has so much money, he's basically tipping God and he's never going to miss it. Meanwhile, the widow on fixed income carefully carves out a tithe and gives it, and the church treasurer notices and is grateful, but has never been impressed because it's only a few dollars. But in relationship to the proportion and the sacrifice, God in heaven looks down and says, that's gold. That's a precious jewel. And it's all going to be tested. And if you know Jesus, my day and yours is coming. Now, two quick questions that are frequently voiced as objections before I'm through. Is it right to be motivated by rewards, someone will say? Should we care about this? I mean, it says right there, over and over again, his work will be tested, his work will be revealed, his work will be rewarded. Should we be motivated by rewards? I'll let Jesus answer. And you're going to read along with me the words of Jesus. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, read it with me. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Stop right there. Previous slide, please. That one. What is Jesus saying in the first part of that sentence? If you can't say it to yourself, you don't really have a grasp on it yet. Bible study tip. If you can't rephrase it in your own words, you don't really understand it. So you just need to slow down and read it again. What's Jesus saying? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't pile it up here. Right? Don't store it all here. Don't pile up all that you can get on earth. Why? Because you might lose it. It can all be gone. Natural disaster can take it. Thieves can come in and steal it. In other words, we all need money, but Jesus says if you pile it all up here, you're foolish. It's always at risk. It can always be taken from you. But what did he say instead? After the comma. Thieves break in and steal. Sorry, previous slide. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You are not to keep it all here, but to send it on ahead. That's how Randy Alcorn explains it. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't actually take anything with you from this life, but according to Jesus, you can lay it up in heaven where, he goes on to say, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, you can store it up in heaven as a reward for yourself that can never be taken from you. And he also says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart always follows your money. Your heart always follows your effort. If that's not clear enough, if that's not too general for you, let me show you a conversation that Jesus had with Peter. This is kind of a 
rollicking little passage. Jesus has just explained to them after a conversation with a wealthy man who chose riches over Jesus. After that man leaves, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, sure is hard for a rich guy to get saved. And it completely blows them away because in their mindset, if you were rich, it means that you were being blessed by God. Now Jesus is saying, if you're rich, it's actually very hard for you to have a relationship with God. Why is that? Not because God hates the rich. God's not impressed with the poor or the rich. Their trouble is with money. People who have a lot of it tend not to make any room for God. They don't need Him. As long as they have, if they only have problems that money can fix, then God isn't necessary. It's only when the rich person encounters a problem that his money cannot solve that he looks to the Lord, generally speaking. That's been my experience. So it completely blows them away that rich people are going to struggle to be saved, and Jesus reassures them, with God, all things are possible. And then Peter asks this question, and I don't want you to read ahead. I just want you to sit with the question for a second. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. Now, what was Peter's previous profession? Commercial fisherman. And he did pretty well. He had a good life. Wasn't wealthy, but he had a respectable profession and he was doing well at it. And he says, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, don't keep reading. What do you think of Peter's question? Kind of selfish, isn't it? What do you expect Jesus is going to say? Something like, well, you ungrateful wretch. You have me. What are you, crazy? You're on your way to hell. I'm going to take you to heaven. Isn't that enough? Doesn't that sound like something you would say? I want you to hear what Jesus said instead. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Did you catch that? Not only are you going to be saved, you're going to be greatly rewarded. You're going to take the place of the patriarchs. You're going to rule over me, over what used to be Israel. You ever seen this in your Bible? It's radical. And I'm nearly convinced that there is spiritual warfare when you read the Bible. I'm reasonably convinced that these passages, which are all through the Bible once you see it, and you see that salvation is by grace, but rewards are entirely by your works once you've been saved by God's grace, I think these passages kind of are blurred from our eyes so that we cannot spiritually focus. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and then he extends the promise to everyone. This is you, this is me. Read the rest of it with me. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Did you see what he said? Anyone who suffers loss for my sake will be, will be rewarded a hundred times times over. Do you know who can give you a hundredfold on your investments? 
Tell me. No, seriously, tell me. I'd love to invest there. If it... <laughs> Nobody can. In fact, if somebody promises you 25%, you should probably call the authorities because that's likely a pyramid scheme. It's probably all a scam that's going to ruin people's lives. If you get 10, 12, 18%, that's, I mean, you're, you're a genius. They'll invite you to conferences. They'll let you write books. They'll let you coach everybody else how to do it. Jesus is so good that he says, you already have me, but if you suffer the loss of anything else for my sake, not because you were reckless, not because you chose to give it away, not because you chose to misuse it, whatever you lose for my name's sake will be returned to you a hundredfold. Man, that changes everything. That can make a bold evangelist out of you. Because the main reason that people don't share their faith is they're afraid that people will break off the relationship, that it'll get kind of chilly in the relationship. Jesus says, you speak for me and you lose friends, you lose family members, I'll reward you a hundred times over in the new world. People struggle to give. The question most Christians ask when it comes to financial giving is how much do I have to give? This changes it. If you really believe that Jesus can store up rewards for you in heaven, the question becomes not how much do I have to, but how much can I? In other words, how do I simplify my life? Where can I save so that I can give from the little money I have? And God knows how much you have, and He knows the proportions. Jesus knows whether to be impressed with your offering as He was once impressed with a widow who gave two little coins. Remember that? Rich people are coming in, they're pouring in the money. Jesus says, ah, they got plenty. Not impressed. This woman, she gave out of, she gave her last bit. That's impressive. That's why he says, I'm convinced, many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, once all of this is exposed and the fire of God's holiness comes through my life and yours, you may be surprised how little I'm rewarded and how greatly you are. Because someone may say of the pastor who's the great communicator or the gifted executive who leads a large mission organization, man, he's really doing it. And Jesus knows the truth. He knows how little talent he's actually using on God's behalf and how much he's made it about himself. Does that make sense? So you need and I need to refocus our lives to understand that the rewards are out there because, number three, and I'm done, God will reveal the worth of every single thing that we do. His holiness will sweep through someday and tell the truth of all of our choices, all of our expenditures, all of our attitudes, all of our actions. What I'm teaching you is an appointment that you have if you're a Christian called the judgment seat of Christ. Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians. He names it in 2 Corinthians. Read this with me. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That was wildly unenthusiastic. Let's read the Bible together. This is happening. Like it or not. If you're a Christian, this day is set for you. The only thing you have control over is how much of your house will be built on the foundation and remain as your reward. Let's read together. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, 
whether good or evil. Now here's a second question. Will I be disappointed? Will I enjoy heaven less because I have lost my rewards? Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you will never be condemned. Please understand the difference. If you are in Christ, if you have that foundation on your life, you will never be condemned, but your works will be judged. You may be one of those who is saved and suffer loss of everything and be saved only as if by fire. In other words, it may be that your house moves through the blast furnace of God's holiness and God's all-perfect, all-consuming, holy knowledge examines all of your life and finds that the only thing that's left is the foundation that He put under you by grace. And there's salvation, but there's no reward. And someone will ask, am I going to be disappointed? Am I going to be able, unable to enjoy heaven because I've lost rewards? Because that's a real possibility. Second John 1.8 says, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you, may be re- that you may win a full reward. In other words, John says to believers, you now have the gospel, make sure you're fully rewarded. And I know that I've lost rewards. I know it. I can remember seasons, choices, sins in my Christian life where I was granted great opportunities and ignored them. God didn't moved on my heart to serve, to give, to love, to forgive, to do the hard thing, to go after the lost who would likely reject me. And I said, eh, no, I'd rather be comfortable. That's loss. I put some wood, I put some hay, I put some straw into the building. Someday it will be evaluated and that opportunity is now gone. Someone will say, well, is is heaven going to be one big bummer? Well, here's my answer. Did you enjoy Paul and Janice's little duet? You know who really enjoyed it? People who have tried to play the piano or the saxophone. Here's a rule in life. The more you invest yourself into something, the more more you enjoy it. See, Paul and Janice and I can go to the world's, to a concert of the world's greatest pianist and and saxophone player. And we can both sit there and be completely in awe. And in the parking lot on the way home, I'll turn to the two of them and go, that was amazing, but they're no better than you are. And they would laugh. Why? They know what I don't. I've put so little time into music. I've never held a saxophone. Paul won't let me. Um, (laughs) I can appreciate the mastery, but not the way he can. I hear him practice his scales every Sunday morning at this church when I park here early, even on the Sundays he doesn't play. Why? How, there's no telling how many thousands of hours he's, inv- he's invested into that instrument, Janice even more so. They have a capacity that they have cultivated through discipline and hard work to enjoy music in a way that will never make sense to me. So we'll all go home from the concert totally filled up, but they will have an enjoyment. They will be moved by it in a way that I never will because I never cared enough. In other words, in terms of your capacity to enjoy heaven, you got to choose. Do you want to be a swimming pool or a Dixie cup? Some of you are choosing to live lives in such a way that your salvation is enough for you. And without a single word of 
contempt or personal judgment to anyone. I would say to me first and also to you, we don't dare blow the ashes of a life wasted into the face of a holy God. You've been given life after Jesus saved you. And God is so good that obeying him is not only right, it will also be rewarded. So the best, most Christian, most loving thing you could do, loving to God and loving to yourself, is take a hard look at your life and ask yourself, how am I building? And if you don't like the materials and you don't like how the house is looking, make some changes because your heavenly Father in His goodness promises not only to save you, but for every loving, obedient thing you do from the moment you trust Christ to reward you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make this a time of evaluation. It's a big lesson. Seldom seen in the Scriptures that we are now to live our lives for you and that because you are so good, you will not only save us, but you will reward us for doing what we should have done in the first place. If there's a single person here, Lord, I haven't primarily spoken to those who don't know Jesus, but perhaps there's someone here who's been coming for weeks and has now humbled himself or herself to the point where they would turn to you and say, Jesus, I understand, please save me. I pray that you would let them call out to you right now. And for the many of us, Lord, the majority of the people who are here who know you, who have that firm foundation under our feet, change us. Keep us, Lord, from the folly of living for ourselves. Help us live for you and to enjoy your reward. In Christ's name, amen.